just pay those puppies off in weight. Let the tenants pay them off. The tenants will happily do that if you give them a clean, decent place to live. And when they want to move on, they move on and you get someone else. So they get flexibility. They get a shelter from the, from the world. You get your bills paid off and you play the long game. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, you are going to learn about crowdfunding in the UK and the European Union. Today, our guest is John Corey, who came from a tech background, got into the more financial side of it, and now he lives in London and then other places around the world, investing in property in a wide variety of markets. He invests using crowdfunding. He's got experience in that. He's going to teach us the important differences between crowdfunding in the UK and the EU compared to how we do it here in the US when we pool money from passive investors via a syndication. There are some important differences over there that you're going to learn about. You're going to learn some of the keys that have enabled John to take his career from working directly with Steve Jobs early in his career now to being a location independent entrepreneur and investor and just being very successful around the world. So this is a really information heavy episode. You're going to learn a lot of important lessons that you can apply both in your career and your real estate investments. And I hope you enjoy this one. It's a bit of a long one, but it will be absolutely worth the ride. Thank you for joining us once again. Now, here we go. John Corey, thank you for joining us on Passive Wealth Strategies today. Happy to be here. You have a varied life. You've done quite a few things. Can you walk our investor, our, our investors, can you walk our listeners through what you've done, where you are now, and how you're living your life? Okay. So there's sort of two tracks. I went to university, graduated with a degree in computer science, and that was in 1982. I then went out to Silicon Valley, worked for Hewlett Packard. And for the tech people in the room, this might be interesting. I'm one of the authors of HP's Unix standards. So I wrote the, the definition of what the Unix product line is for HP, along with a bunch of other people. Uh, 1982, I was paid to be online to, as part of that exercise. I then, after eight years at HP, moved on to Next, uh, which was Steve Jobs' next company after Apple. I was there for three years through a series of management changes. I ended up working directly for Steve for a year, uh, among other things. Uh, I met people there that you might know or people that did uh, create software that changed the world and you, you're all using it. Um, I can go into a little tangent about Bill. Um, <laughs> when we think about Steve, he, there's a Stanford University talk and he talks about how when you look backwards, you can connect the dots. Well, there's a couple of things about that. That's true, which is also a way of saying you can erase the dots or over gloss over the dots that aren't part of the story that people want to hear. So you, you learn how to tell a story. And if you have enough interesting things, then you can be sort of selective about the bits you share. So in this whole time, so that would have been three plus eight to so 11 years. After about a year, when I was first starting at 82, in 1983, I read a book called Nothing Down. I did a two-day, one evening uh, free seminar. Didn't realize there was an upsell. The, <laughs> guy kept, the guy kept talking about, you know, there's three ways, uh, sorry, there's seven ways to do this, but I'm going to cover three tonight. It's like, well, what about the other four? 
And I liked what he said. It followed largely what was in the book. Um, and sure enough, myself and Amex decided that it was smart for me to go to a weekend seminar. So I bought the weekend seminar. Saturday and Sunday, I had to drive up to San Francisco. Now, let's put this in context. There's no Google Maps. I live in Monterino, which is next to San Jose, which is below Cupertino, where I worked. And I had to get to San Francisco for 8.30 or so start at a hotel I've never been to. Um, a city I knew where it was, it's 70 miles away, but I had to actually use like a physical landline phone because there's no cell phones to call the hotel to figure out, well, what's the parking situation? Um, I had to then figure out with a paper map, okay, what do I think this is going to take me to get up there? I couldn't put it into Google. The Google guys hadn't been born yet, probably. Um, so I go up and I take this class Saturday, Sunday. There's probably 20 of us in the room. And essentially, I'm paying a few hundred pounds, basically just under five, sorry, dollars, because I do live in the UK, but this was in dollars. It was about $500 now that I remember, right? And it's really just a blown up, more detailed version of the book I read that cost me like $10. But anyway, it was fine. Mm -hmm. By Sunday, I figured out I can actually do this. So I, I remembered in my mind that next to Montessorino is Los Ghettos, bottom of the hill, mile away. So Monday morning, I'm going to walk down there to see the real estate agent, I figure, um, if I can find the office, because I'm pretty sure there is one. And my boss doesn't expect me in right away Monday morning anyways, because rather well-trained when it comes to the boss. I go down, I walk in on Monday morning. If you're from the U.S. and you understand real estate agents, the top person doesn't work Monday mornings for any walk-in trade. So I get this guy, nice enough guy, but he was probably not their top person. And he starts talking to me and I talk to him and I answer some questions and he says, well, let me look uh, in the book. And he pulls out the MLS. By the way, he pulls out a book. He doesn't get on the computer. He gets out a book. He was old enough that he liked the book better. He finds three properties that he thought fit the criteria based on the interview with me. He said, would you like to go see him? I said, sure. We jump in his car. We go see one. We go see two. We go see three. Third one, I said, actually, I sort of like this one. It's in San Jose, down by Santa Teresa, which is where the IBM facility is, South San Jose, near Gilroy. And he said, well, would you like to write it up? I said, sure, because I'd been to the weekend course. You're supposed to do this. So we go back to the office, we fill out the form, we write it up. I figure grandma can help out a little in the down payment, that my cousin called MasterCard can help with the rest. And <laughs> I drive into work about two o'clock, uh, having signed the, the offer form. And about five o'clock, I can't quite remember, the um, agent calls and says, you're now the owner of the house, that they've accepted the offer. So we just have to go through the normal escrow process. Um, and that's how I bought my first property. It turns out between the tax benefits and everything else, I could buy the house and rent two bedrooms to complete strangers who I found through a physical newspaper ad. That was going to cost me less than renting a bedroom in a house that I was renting in Montecerino. Mm -hmm. So here I am with a better position and I'm an owner. So these days we call it maybe house hacking um, well, whatever we want to call it. They hadn't even invented house hacking. There was no such thing as bigger pockets. In fact, there was no such thing as the web. So none of that stuff existed. You had to go to physical meetings. But those two careers continued. I ended up moving with Swiss Bank Corporation from Oregon, where I was then living later, probably, this is probably 15 years, 
uh, over to Swiss Bank Corporation London, worked out of the London office, continued to own property in the US, started buying up property in the UK. And these days I like to say I have property from Hawaii to Bradford, England, or say London if you want to know what the, if you know where London is. Um, 11 time zones between them, mostly nothing that I own in between them, but a few here and there based on where I've lived or worked. And that's sort of the tech property story without all the sexy bits. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the first house hack before it was called house hacking, that is a great way to get started, especially for somebody that doesn't have a whole lot of capital to invest. If you can make that initial down payment, there are even a lot of options today to do that. 3%, 3% in the- Yeah, this was a 5% loan uh, where deposited the down payment is 5%. The bank was providing 95. The interest rate was 10 and three quarters percent interest and it changed monthly. Yeah, so that is the other part of this equation. Back then, it was a completely different world in terms of the debt that was available and the rates it was available at. What were the, some of the other details on that loan? So it was a negative amortization loan in that each month the interest rate could change, but the payment, physical payment amount was fixed for 12 months, and then it would reset once a year. And if the interest rate caused the rate that has caused the payment that you, they would want you to pay to be higher than the contract amount, then they would just add that to the loan balance. So you could actually see your loan grow month to month rather than go down. Otherwise it was meant to be a fully amortized loan. Um, in my case, I took the view I'd just keep up with the extra payments if I had to. And I can't remember what happened some months, but essentially it was fine. Um, that was a competitive interest rate at the time. And the 95% down, it was, uh, it was a portfolio lender. So it was not a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, anything like that. It was literally a lender that was holding on their books. And that was essentially the prevailing climate. I mean, inflation rates had been a lot higher. And we had the crash of the late 70s. This I'm buying, what, 83. So we're coming out of essentially a housing crash. Now, the, here's the funny thing, by the way, too. I say housing crash. So there were parts of the U.S. that had experienced negative growth or falling prices. But historically, from 1947, I think it was, till 2007 or 2008, the U.S. as a national market had only ever seen rising values with one year that was flat. So there was like 67 up years of one year flat. But yet within the local market, you could have housing corrections, you could have housing crashes. Southern California had two or three over that same period of time, at least. Um, the, the Texas area and everything fell apart in the 80s. So the one of the problems when you think about property investing is people hear stories and a lot of the detail is left out and it sounds very different or it sounds more positive or it sounds more negative. It depends on how the person's trying to tell the story. But if you drill into the data, you might find that the reality is very different. Hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, times have really changed. We're in a completely different debt environment right now. And you're working on a new type of investing with investors that uh, is unique to the European Union from what we do here in the U.S. and what is legal 
here in the U.S. So can you walk us through what you're doing there, the whole situation with uh, your crowdfunding efforts? Okay. Um, so crowdfunding globally has sort of four main models. There's just a straight up donation or there's when you buy things in advance, whether it's tickets, whether it's a future watch design or something. And those two ticket sales or product sales or donations are not regulated generally anywhere in the world. There may be some fringe countries that have issues, but otherwise they're unregulated. When you get into offering a financial return or financial reward, whether it's a loan-based type structure or a share-based startup type structure, those are regulated. Those are essentially, in the US would be the SEC, in the UK it's the FCA, which stands for the Financial Conduct Authority. So the FCA in the UK in 2014 came up with uh, a framework for crowdfunding. So you can either borrow money or you can sell shares. Uh, So I'd like to say debt or equity. So you can raise debt from the crowd or you can raise equity from the crowd. And in particular, some of the platforms that have become authorized under this legislation are focusing on letting people raise money for their real estate deals or their property deals, as they generally call it. So people can put up a deal on a platform. They might pay 500 pounds to get the deal listed on the platform. So in today's dollars, maybe $650. They essentially have what I like to say is a single deal IPO, initial public offering. So you are literally offering a piece of your deal to the public, retail public, not just the sophisticated, accredited, or high net worth public, but any member of the public. Um, The FCA's legislation tends to apply across across the EU, at least subject to the Brexit issues. So I can advertise, I can bring in investors from anywhere in the EU. Um, Many times the investors are in the UK for UK deal. There may be a platform in France that under the French legislation is raising money. That would probably be country centric only because people tend to invest closer to home. But the point is it is legal across the EU. So, and the other thing that's interesting more for the property investors here is you can also break it down into phases. So if I was um, buying a property that I thought I could put uh, a larger multifamily property on, so it's a single family house now, and it's the permissions in theory exist, and I'm gonna apply to get the permissions specifically to do that on this site. Literally, I've run campaigns or participating campaigns or helped fund campaigns or design campaigns where the crowd is funding the paperwork costs to get that permission to uplift the value of that property. There is no building being done. There's no Mm -hmm. building necessarily anticipated by the investor who has the deal under control. They're intending to sell it on to someone else that wants to build it out, but they're funding the paperwork to get the value increased. So Mm -hmm. in the UK, we call this planning uplift or planning gain. And in the US, you would say zoning. In the UK, they would say planning. So you're asking for a zoning change in a sense. Uh, If you're in the US and if you get it, then that asset might be more valuable. Uh, Apartment building becoming condos, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a common strategy here, at least with land is buying raw land and then having it re-entitled or entitled to say, you could turn it into a subdivision and build a bunch of houses on it or something like that. And uh, Correct. 
very common strategy. So what are you finding uh, is like, is there a dominant, as far as real estate investments go, is there a dominant strategy amongst that crowdfunding, uh, those crowdfunding platforms? Are people doing everything? And what do you think is the most successful type of real estate that could, uh, real estate investing that could use this as a tool? So I would say that based on the UK so far in my experience with it, um, and I've guided some people in how to put together their offers. So I have a reasonable, well, okay, being British here. So in America, I have a great understanding of how this works. In Britain, I would say I have a reasonable understanding. Um, the, the sweet spot is shorter projects, 18 months, two years, maybe slightly longer than that, but nothing more. Um, people want to be able to get in and get out. It's like an early date. It's not marriage. So I'm interested in your project. I'm interested in getting my money back. Um, I'm happy to have my money locked up for 12, 24 months, but then I want it all back. I'm not, in, I'm not buying cash flow. I'm not investing for cash flow. It tends to appeal to people who are interested in being property investors themselves and they just can't find a deal or they have a bunch of deals and they have a bit of spare cash and this is a way of investing in spare cash or they think they might want to do their own deal in the future and they're learning how this works. So one of the easiest ways to learn how to work is be an investor, see what the investors receive, see what the information is, see how the documents are organized, see how the shareholders agreement or the loan agreement is set up. And then if you ever want to raise money yourself, now you know, cause you've been on the other side. So it's a, I like to say there's a term, mismatch. Anybody that wanted like 30 year financing, you won't find many investors interested in providing it. Mm -hmm. um, they're interested in short term stuff. So you have the person with the project wants long term, the person with the money wants short term. So the projects that do the best are the ones where the developer can either create it different phases and they can fund one phase, exit those investors with the next set of investors, exit those investors with the next set. Or they have uh, a flip. They want to buy it. They want to fix it. They want to sell it. They're going to be in and out in nine months. So they raise the money with the provisor. They can run a little late, but it's a short-term deal. So what do investors, you mentioned the, they want a short time frame. As far as returns go, what are they typically looking for in this crowdfunding uh, strategy? Um, you can go to some sites in the UK and if people want to get in touch later, I could give you specific URLs. So it's a way of just looking. You wouldn't necessarily be able to invest because a lot of the um, platforms specifically exclude Americans. There's some tax reporting issues, mm -hmm. but you can at least see the information at the headline. The returns vary quite a bit. So if I was asking you to co-fund or uh, put up some money to uh, obtain planning change or zoning change, I would probably be paying you 40 to 50% return on your money. Um, and that's essentially for what would be a one-year project. So four zero to five zero percent. Now, why could they afford to do that? Well, as an example, there was a project that was raising 40,000. They had already put in a bunch of money themselves they wanted to obtain permission to build a small development of essentially what you would call condos. And if they received the permission from the local government authority to build that complex, 
the uplift in value from what they were able to buy it. They had an option and they were going to, the uplift in value would be about 300,000 sterling. So if they raised 40 and they had to pay a 50% return, that means they needed to be able to pay back 60 uh, or pay or buy out the shareholders at 60. So the rest of that 300 minus the 60 would be their profit. Wow. So they could easily pay that type of return because the uplift was very good. When you're developing something that produces only a 20% total return for the whole project, you probably can't pay anywhere close to 20% uh, for very much of that money. So it tends to vary quite a bit. I've seen offers that have been in the 6% range, secured first uh, lien. I've seen offers that are 40, 50% for planning, where if the opportunity doesn't go well, they don't get permission, you would actually lose 100% of your capital. So, Yeah, the risk adjustment to that return is uh, pretty substantial when you consider it could go to zero pretty easily. Yes, uh, you, and one of the things you do as you, so in the UK, capital is at risk is the standard warning, which means that there's no guarantee at all. There's no government backing. There's no way that anybody is protected from a, a complete loss. Um, but what individual investors can do is you do your due diligence on the project. You do your due diligence on the actual team. Have they done something like this before? Do they know what they're doing? Do they have the outside consultants that are needed or whatever for the project? You also then say, well, let's now, if I have a thousand pounds only or $1,500 only, let's divide that over a few projects of the same type maybe. So if I like the 40, 50% return from planning, well, I'll not put it all in one. I'll put hundred pounds in 10 of them or a $1,550 in 10 of them. So then that way, if a team screws up or a planning officer or a government council person says no, you haven't lost all of your capital. And if you say three or four of those go badly and five or six of those go well and you're making 50% return on the ones that did go well, that papers over the ones that you lost money on. So you end up still in positive territory with the blended uh, return that is much more appropriate. Wow. So... I mean, that's incredible. Those returns are huge and then could also be uh, not very poor or non-existent. Uh, one of the, I suppose, issues that I see with this um, structure, this strategy, is it could be very open to uh, fraud, for lack of a better word. You know, how do you know that the uh, sponsors for, I don't know what the term would be, but this, the deal sponsors, how do you know that they're going to put their best efforts in? They're not going to, you know, hire their brother's law firm who's going to do a poor job just so they can get it. Mm -hmm. I don't know any of the things you could think of that could make the deal go badly just so they can walk with the cash. I mean, how are investors protected here? So let's be blunt. Investors are not absolutely not protected. They have to do their own homework. Now, there's a reputational risk to the actual person that has the deal. If they are trying to do deals over time, they want to, as much as possible, do their best job, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, they can't predict when planes are going to crash into buildings. They can't predict when the weather's going to go bad or the lorry 
which is in the UK language for a truck is going to tip over and materials are going to get destroyed or someone falls off a ladder and gets hurt. So you have to look at the complexity of this. If anybody's investing in a flip, all kinds of things can happen and screws up your flip. What the passive investor can do is the following, put very small amounts in and test them out. Think of it as dating. This is the first date. You're not going to have grandkids on the first date. You're going to have a coffee. You're going to chat. You're going to figure out whether you like the person. Do they communicate? Do they call when they say they're going to call? Does the investor send you updates like they said they were going to send you? If something went wrong in the project, does it make sense that it happened? And did they do what was appropriate to try to mitigate the problem? Understanding that there's, they don't have a crystal ball, so they can't anticipate everything. Do they keep the insurance payments up so that if there was a fire, at least the insurance paid out eventually, that sort of thing. So anytime you invest in a deal yourself, you absolutely have these risks. What would you do to address those risks? Is this other person who's running the project doing what you would do? Are they listening if you ask questions? Do they have decent responses? And if you put in $100, you can afford to blow it to find out if they're a bozo. And this is the cost of maybe checking them out. It's mm -hmm. a cost of a first date. If you like what they've done, the track record seems good, the, the team is solid, because by the way, you want a team of people on the project. Someone's gonna get hit by a bus. Someone else is gonna take a holiday or get pneumonia or something. Stuff happens. So you spread out the risk of that by having a wider team. You spread out the risk of any one project going poorly, uh, they had a problem in Britain. They dug up a site and found a king who had been buried. Now it's an archaeologically significant site. It's all shut down for six months while they figure out how they're going to move the king. It's like, you got to be kidding me. If you get a loan in that, it's going to be killing you. But that happens. Mm -hmm. So you put 100 in this, 100 in that, do five or six or 10 of these. You listen, you pay attention. The people who do a good job, who seem to be on, on the ball, you say, okay, next time I'm going to put a thousand in or something. You know, you, you, it, very, again, I like using the dating analogy. First date, second date, before we get to discussions about possible marriage, discussions about grandkids and university education, you know, there's an order to these things. And the biggest mistake a passive investor would make is to dive in too deep too fast. Mm. Um, particularly people that have a bunch of money, it's like, it's better to have the money in the bank earning zero than it is to have a bunch of it in the hands of a bozo. So you want to <laughs> check these people out. Wow. Could you say that one more time? I got to get a clean take. I, la I laughed over that because it's an awesome quote. I love it. Could you repeat that? Uh, too many people worry about their money's not producing. So I say it's better to have the money in the bank earning nothing, but you still have it, than it is to be in a rush to put your money into the hands of someone that you haven't checked out and they turn out to be a bozo and they lose your money. Nice. I appreciate the second go around on that. I wanted to have some clean audio there. So we have that for later. I really like it. Can these, uh, these yeah, funds... By the way, let me go a little further on this. So a friend of mine, one of the things I didn't mention was when I worked at the, when I worked at Next, I was running the project at IBM. I was the team manager for Next. And I had a counterpart at IBM and it was a joint project. And one of the people I got to know there was uh, Summer Hire. He was a student at Stanford and he and I stayed in touch, things moved on. 
he went and did an advanced degree. Um, I, he came back to Stanford as a student after getting his advanced degree somewhere else and was working on his PhD. I met him before I headed off to uh, Britain in 1994. We went down to the computer science lab. He shows me this thing. It's called the browser. It was one of the first browsers known to man. Um, and now complete tangent is, by the way, the web was invented to justify buying a next computer. And I can tell you about <laughs> that if you want. Uh, it's in Tim Berners-Lee's book um, about why he came up with the web because he wanted to get access to Bill's software. So anyway, I see this demo of a browser, things move on some more. There's a few other companies involved. I bring the person in to work at Swiss Bank for a bit, just a tiny bit, and some other things happen. But anyway, he calls me up one day and or somehow reaches out and asks me if I could beta test some software for a company he's now with. He's a co-founder and the company created an online platform for business professionals. So he's one of the co-founders of LinkedIn and I was a beta tester. And jumping forward from the birth of LinkedIn till now, more recently we're talking about how can we do more transactions over the internet? And one of the big hurdles is trust. So how do you trust a person that you've never met? Never mind trust people you have met. And what can you do online to substitute the fact that you just don't have FaceTime with people and all the rest? So he and I have been talking about how to crack that issue in the space of the real estate investing area of like, how do we engender trust? How do we build track records? How do we build reputation so that people can fund their deals and fund their deals legally following the necessary regulations? That, I mean, that's a huge question. I mean, how to, I mean, we have bigger pockets out there and people maintain their reputations and get the word out about themselves through bigger pockets. That's how we got in touch. Mm -hmm. but, I mean, I guess that's as close as we have to a LinkedIn for real estate investors. Yeah. And I would say that LinkedIn and bigger pockets both fail to even try to solve this. So this is looking at the problem differently and, assuming that those platforms exist, but then how do you actually build a reputation that can be verified? It's mm. a big question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I've seen some of the online forums where individuals are talking a better game than they have ever done, um, whether they are significant on a platform or not. There are other cases where they have multiple personas and you start to wonder who the hell, like, it sounds like that person commenting on this person, but aren't they the same person? So. I don't know. We don't need to get any, into uh, any names and sling any mud at any. In oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, direction. <laughs> it's more without, it's not about the names. It's more about the environment in which this happens and how to separate the wheat from the chaff or how to, create a positive environment for the people that have deals and make it in a way that the people that are more of the rogue behavior, basically that we suck the oxygen out of the room. So the rogues don't have anywhere to go. Mm, yeah. So the, the cream rises to the top, if you will, and the best and, people stand yeah. out so that. And also, so new players have a way to get established. Like, Academically, we have a process by which we graduate and then we go to universities, whatever, and get degrees and 
blessings or whatever they are that signify that we must know something. So if a person's willing to do the homework, they can get there. It'd be nice if there was a, a more prescriptive process by which people could establish trust, similar to eBay, where people can establish a trust of a, I'm a good vendor and I've done enough transactions and you're a real customer and you've done enough transactions, Airbnb, they're all sort of working from that point of view. Oh yeah. I mean, if uh, an eBay or or an Amazon product and therefore the seller, if they have a three-star rating, no way am I going to buy their even, you know, $15 trinket, let alone send them my, you know, 25 or $50,000 plus to handle and invest. And we don't even have that kind of a system. You know, if I say a five-star rating system out there or a view system, yes. it sounds like you have something in mind. Are you working on something in this regard? It's very early stage. Um, there's an element of using blockchain as a way to publish the information, not because we believe in a cryptocurrency, but more that we believe in a distributed database that you can then um, share and therefore is a little bit harder to fake. And second of all, we take the view that individuals should be able to decide who can see their profile. So if you're trying to raise money and investors are interested, uh, there's a bit of a dance that you and the investors would do to say, okay, are you credible as an investor? Are you credible as the developer? And you know, start to open the kimono, so to speak, so that we can share information. So it's almost like an NDA process without the idea of an NDA. It's more of a, uh, a digital process that lets people see information. Hmm. This is a, an interesting idea. You said it's an early, uh, early phase of the process. Is it, is this something you have a, maybe a target launch date for? Do you have a, a, a prototype in mind? It's, maybe you don't have one working now. What's there's, the there's no target date at this stage. Uh, there's a white paper that was done for the general principle. And there's been a couple of the companies that have nothing to do with what I'm talking about that are using some of the same concepts with the same individual that I'm working with. Um, Cause it, you could argue that there's possible test cases or solutions in different domains and what you might want for real estate investing might be slightly different. One of the positives of the real estate investing field is a long history um, of online forums. Uh, I, I started online in 82. There were online real estate forums in 82. They wow. weren't, bigger pockets. They weren't, you know, what we think of today as a Facebook forum, but there were of that time something and it's evolved since then. The first uh, online website for real estate that had a forum was uh, CRE online. Uh, now that's sort of been surpassed and passe now, but ultimately the idea that people share information and best practice and get to know each other and maybe meet up at events or do live sessions like this. So you could argue that blogs and podcasts are also a, a different type of medium for the same thing. Hmm. It's a similar idea. I mean, we're getting the word out there about what we do and our experience. And yeah, I mean, we're not, <laughs> we're not publishing reviews or anything right here, but we're getting our, our name out there or talking about our experience and Yes. Yeah. One of the, the little tangent, and then we can get back maybe on topic if you want. Um, in the early days when I was online, we only had text. We didn't have images. We didn't have sound. We didn't have anything. We had text. And supposedly 
7% of what a person communicates is in the actual words, the, the words they choose to use, the, what I'm, literally the words I'm saying or the words I type. The next chunk or increment is tone. There's no tone in written words. There were no emojis back then. This is back before emojis. So there was no tone in the words. And it was very easy to, to misunderstand what someone's saying if you only have 7% of the full bandwidth. So 39% is tone. 50-something percent, so more than half, is body language. And we all know this because we're told that if you hear something from someone but the body language doesn't match, ask them. Like, okay, you just said the following, but from your body language, I don't think you really mean it or there's something else going on or are you okay or is there something wrong? So we're, we're as human beings, we're trained to pay attention to body language. So how do you get more of the richness if you can't have body language? Well, maybe you can with video. If you can't get tone, well, maybe you can with podcasts. If you have written words, contracts, did they deliver yes or no? How much money went in? How much money came out? Can I see that data? Okay, well, now we have lots of artifacts to build trust with. Hmm. I mean, that's a, a good point about the audio and video. Uh, you know, the first time you meet a podcaster that you've been listening to for years it feels like you know them but they have no idea who you are but you know you've had an inside view on their life and their thoughts for potentially years sometimes so it's uh you do really feel like you know the people that you've been listening to correct now, if words and tone definitely are visible in podcasts and it but it is as you said broadcast so you get as the listener a lot of benefits, but they don't know you. Yeah, yeah. it is. I've, I've had, you know, even the short life of this podcast, I've had people who have listened and I've never met, but then I meet them in person and, you know, they know some stuff about me and I'm like, did I, I talked about that? Oh, okay. I don't know. Yes. Yes. Kind of fun. I know the experience. Yes. And <laughs> I learned it from running concerts at university where I would have a few hundred people working for me at a concert. And for the next week on campus, people would greet me as if I should know them. Well, technically they worked for me, so I probably well, should have known them, but they only worked for me one night maybe. And it was like, okay, they all know me, but I don't know them. Okay, I got to get over this. So, <laughs> so um, while we've got you, I also wanted to ask about these crowdfunding platforms. Can they only buy assets in the EU or can they buy anywhere in the world? Can they buy in the US? So the legislation allows the asset to be anywhere in the world. An individual platform might make a business decision to restrict the markets in which they choose to allow the assets to be listed from. And that partially would come down to, do they think their community of investors would understand? Uh, if they're not allowing US investors to invest, does it make sense to have US property available? Uh, if the UK investors are happy to buy, say, stuff around Disney, which is fairly common in Florida, uh, then it might make sense. But if it was an apartment complex in Cleveland, a lot of Brits might say, Cleveland, where's that? What's an apartment <laughs> complex? As an example, by the way, there's no such thing as multifamily residential in the UK. It doesn't exist as an asset class the way it exists in the US. So the whole language, methodology, uh, the marketing, the, the value proposition, it would be rather difficult for a lot of UK investors to get their head around because they'd be kidding it cold. 
Hmm. You mean uh, multifamily residential, like a well, your your case of a fifty unit apartment complex or a 200, 300 unit apartment complex, something, you know, in that they, scale. Yeah, they generally don't have apartment complexes in the UK. Well, I, mean, I didn't know that. So, exactly. And this, yeah. this is what you don't know, you don't know can be interesting, which if someone wants to put in 100 to learn, that might be an inexpensive way to learn. The way I talked about this is if you're going to go take a weekend course and you're going to spend 100 or 500 or 3,000 or whatever the number is, what if you put the same amount into investing in some deals that are focused on the same topics you wanted to learn? So you're going to learn through secondary exposure to the deal, but you might actually get a profit out of the deal rather than you bought a ticket and now you've got the receipt from a ticket and nothing much else. Yeah. I think that's a great way to go, you know, and we're not talking about a hundred thousand. We're talking about a hundred pounds in this case, yep. which you know, most busy professionals, hopefully, you know, if you're listening to this show, hopefully you've got at least that much, you know. Well, if you don't, then you probably shouldn't be taking the course anyways, because the course is only going to teach you how to invest more than that. And there's no guarantee that the course is right for you or that you're going to have the ability to to implement what you're learning. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, John, I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Go for it. First question, what is the best investment you ever made? So without necessarily doing the math, I would say the um, it was a property in the UK in London. I was buying it before it was built. So I put down the 10% for the property I bought. I was buying it because I liked the layout, the location. It was going to be what they would call live work, which meant I could actually run a company out of part of it and have a residence in the other part. Um, Before the purchase finished, there were some delays because the developer had a problem with a different building on the site. It was a multi-site, multi-building site, which then extended things for an extra year. Fine. It was a rising market when that happened. Um, So for my 10%, oh, they also then said, we have this extra parcel that we thought we're going to need for something else. We don't need it. Do you want to buy it seeing you're on two sides of it? I said, sure. Um, So we added that into the deal and, but I didn't have to put any more deposit down. So it turns out that I was in the deal for 10%. It took 20 months instead of 12 months and it had gone up by, um, I think, how much did it go up by? So it went up by, it almost doubled in that period. So it was quite a rapid moving market. Um, I didn't know this in advance. Um, so it turned out that when I did the math, roughly it was a thousand percent return in 22 months. And I was talking to a venture capital friend of mine, uh, again, the, you know, the tech network that I have. And I said, you know, I had earned about a thousand percent. And he said, well, those are like VC type returns, um, but you don't have the downside. So then I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, when we make our investments, a lot of times we end up with zero from our investments other than used furniture. Um, it's rare that when you're buying a piece of real estate that it's going to go to zero. So while you could get wiped out, the point is he thought it was lower risk and I'm, a- and I'm earning the same as what they consider one of their home runs, a thousand percent return in two years or less. 
So that would probably be our best investment if we skip the whole general commentary about education. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, when those VCs, they blend their thousand percent returns with their zero percent returns, they're probably still, the, the good ones are probably still doing very well, but they're not, their their portfolio return is not a thousand well, percent. Their target portfolio return historically, and this is probably not valid today per se, but in general, is a 25% compounded return. So that includes all the zeros plus the thousands. And when you blend it, and they want to be able to offer a 15 to 25, say, maybe lowered today, uh, return to their investors, because they're basically raising the money from someone else. And they want a blended return uh, over that. And I would say with property deals, you can achieve that if you're smart and mm -hmm. by smart, I mean, you have to pay attention, do your homework. This, this field does not record, sorry, does not reward people who are brain surgeons. It rewards people who pay attention to the detail. I like that. It does not reward people who are brain surgeons. It rewards people who pay attention to the detail. Now on the other side of that best investment coin, we have the worst investment you ever made. What is the worst investment you ever made? There's been some courses that have been complete throwaways, but I would say probably the worst investment is not exactly an investment. It's actually getting distracted by things. My profile, if you were to do some psychometric testing, is I'm a creative or creator, and therefore I will be early. I'm an early adopter, and I will therefore start out with a strategy and rather than scaling it um, really big, I will tend to figure out the next strategy. So my investing uh, activities didn't scale sometimes because I was always off on the next one or I was spending money on the next strategy. So you could say that it's um, allowing myself to be distracted. And so it's not exactly a financial loss. It's a little hard and a buy and hold investor, which is what I am, to lose money. If you own it for 20 years and you bought it reasonably well-located, it's going to be hard to lose money. Um, so I, I would say it's listening to the distractions rather than focusing my time and energy and my money. So it's not a financial loss. It's an opportunity loss. The old shiny object syndrome that afflicts so many of us. I have to caution myself away from uh, shiny object syndrome on probably literally a daily basis. So I definitely appreciate the struggle there. My favorite question out of these three is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? So there's sort of two parts to this property investing is capital intensive. So when you buy real estate for investment purposes, it chews up a lot of capital and produces a small return, but you can enhance that with leverage or debt um, so you can magnify it. Uh, the other side of that though is you can do quite well if you hold long-term. So if you buy and hold and let inflation do its thing, the generally the central banks are trying to create a slight degree of positive inflation which means if you own assets that appreciate because of inflation, then they're almost building in that you're going to end up selling an asset later at a higher value. Just stay in the game. So my view there is if you can get 10 properties 
that cash flow so that the tenants are paying all the bills, including all the maintenance, everything else, that they pay enough rent to cover everything so you're not out of pocket every month. Just pay those puppies off in weight. Let the tenants pay them off. The tenants will happily do that if you give them a clean, decent place to live. And when they want to move on, they move on and you get someone else. So they get flexibility. They get a shelter from the, from the world. You get your bills paid off and you play the long game, which means you got to have a bit of a life while you wait out the long game. So whether it's family, whether it's a career that you enjoy, find something to do with your time, but you will make more money from playing the long game than you will constantly flipping deals. Um, I've seen a lot of people who just constantly flip and then they wonder why after you know a meltdown in the market, they're, they're looking at almost where they were a few years ago. So. Mm, they don't have that long-term vision. We want to have that long-term vision. Don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Correct. Exactly. Now to be sort of the other side of it, the, the person who really enjoys hunting for deals should hunt for deals. They just have to appreciate that economically they need to retain a few of those. The people who like to flip, they like to tear it apart and fix it up and give someone a nice place. That's great. And they probably shouldn't be holding all of them, but with crowdfunding, maybe they can, they can let the crowd fund it and they can move on to the next one. And the crowd might love those investments, but if they want to secure their financial future, they want to be passive. They want to have income without having to get out of bed in the morning. They want to be able to take a holiday or get injured on the job and still have the bills paid. They need to be growing some assets and they can do that with their activities, but they need to hang on to some of those assets to make it work. All right, John, I appreciate everything today, all the lessons and exposing us to this, at least from my American perspective, this different way of passively investing in properties and also bringing passive investors into a deal to help fund it. And, you know, everything that, in a way, everything that we in the U.S. are missing out on in terms of crowdfunded real estate opportunities. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, who you are, where they can find you, how can they get in touch and where are you on the internet? So a few things. Um, and before I answer that question, sure. the US SEC has created legislation that allows you to mimic some of the things I said work well in the UK. Um, going through the process right now of translating and deciphering and peeling back 506B, 506C are two ways that you can do syndications. Uh, Reg A or uh, Reg CF are the crowdfunding or public ways that the SEC allows people to, in a sense, do something similar. My assessment right now is they're not quite as easy or as flexible as what I can do in the UK, but I think you can possibly use the legislation that does exist in the US. So it's not with, it's not like it's closed to you, it's just that it's different than what I've been explaining. Mm, yep. Part of yeah, the exercise no. and the reason for highlighting this is I will be sort of mapping that out and figuring that out and I'm working with some other people, lawyers, to like break it down because part of what I like to do is explain things to people. That's part of the creative side of me. So if people want to follow along and they want to know more, they can go to propertyfortress.com. That's propertyfortress.com. They can book a call if they go to the ask-john, A-S-K hyphen J-O-H-N. Um, happy to have a chat. They can get in touch through Facebook. 
Uh, I sort of use LinkedIn. It's not top of my list. But John Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, is on uh, Facebook. You'll notice on Facebook there's also a Property Fortress um, page for my business. So that might be the easier thing to find on Facebook. John Corey's being a little bit common. Uh, but I use the same photo across most of the platforms. So once you find the right um, profile, you'll know it's me because it'll look like me across all of them. Mm, yeah, it's uh, you're you're pretty recognizable, easy to find. I would, uh, yeah, just follow up on your your comment about the differences uh, between syndication law here versus across the pond. It appears to me, or it sounds to me, like this crowdfunding. Uh, method in the EU is indeed easier than the crowdfunding method, uh, at least here in the US. I mean, I syndicate deals myself. I invest passively in deals and I bring investors into deals that I'm doing. Uh, but we do 506B, so we we don't publicly advertise on a website. Um, and my knowledge of the publicly advertised crowdfunding uh, requirements here it does indeed seem more restrictive. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, that, and I forgot that you have that background. So the 506B definitely has the restriction. 506C, you can allow sophisticated investors who aren't accredited. Um, I'm not sure whether you can advertise if you do that. Um, one of those, maybe I reverse them, but one you can advertise in some limited way, but it isn't quite as wide open as what I was explaining. And the cost of entry, the cost of starting is higher. Um, I'm hopeful that there'll be progress in the US. And at the same time, I think for some number of deals, it, it works right now. It works fine. And you just have to work with the tools you have. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. I hope we can have you on again uh, in the future to get follow-up information, maybe a little bit more detail on the differences between you know crowdfunding over there versus here and compared to syndication over here. This is a very large and complicated topic and I really wanna stay on top of it and keep in touch with you about it. No problem, happy to have future chats with you or anyone else that's been listening. Absolutely, well, everybody who is interested, definitely reach out to John. He's uh, very helpful on Bigger Pockets, always adding great information to the discussion and that's uh, been a great discussion today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a big help and helps other people learn about what we're talking about here on the show. If you know anyone that could use some more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our tribe. I want to thank you for tuning in once again, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.